You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. Annie here for Solidarity Breakfast, a beautiful morning outside uh, after the uh, deluge on uh, Wednesday, I think it was. Uh, the uh, the sky seems to have settled down and uh, we are experiencing a uh, brilliant sort of a beginning of summer. Uh, there were a couple of anniversaries this week. Uh, Friday was the anniversary of the uh, Eureka Stockade, a very important date on the uh, left and progressive calendar uh, for in Australia. Uh, in the world, in fact, uh, the fight back by uh, miners against uh, heavy taxation and repression from the uh, uh, boss class, <laughs> and they took to the took to the um, to arms and uh, built the stockade. Anyway, it was Friday, and uh, we will uh, mark the day by uh, listening to the Eureka Stockade song by uh, David Robix, I think bit later. It also is the um, an important anniversary for the uh, West Palpuans um, with uh, a, a commemoration of uh, the beginning of their wonderful Morning Star flag. So later on we will um, commemorate that too, important t- dates in their struggle. Um, <coughs> oh, excuse me. Uh, today we're going to... Uh, go to a fantastic uh, demonstration that happened uh, last night, 5.30, outside a mansion in the avenue, just, uh, you may never have been to this little part of Melbourne, but uh, it was very impressive. It's just beside the lip of uh, Royal Park, uh, a very salubrious street, and uh, there's a mansion there that uh, was actually purchased by Melbourne University for the present uh, Vice-Chancellor to live in for and uh, the NTEU, the National Tertiary Education Union, and uh, the Casual uh, Workers Network um, uh, set up a demonstration outside the front uh, calling for the end of casualisation within the Melbourne University workforce, in fact, across public universities in general. And this follows a uh, fantastic win uh, where um, Melbourne University, RMIT and others are experiencing a payback uh, for wage theft that has been uh, going on for years uh, at the public universities. Uh, It was around uh, the non-payment or correct payments for uh, uh, 
the uh, level of um, uh, skill required for um, uh, doing marking and corrections. Uh, some people were being um, underpaid by $10 to $20 an hour. In fact, there was a man from RMIT who, gave, who said that at the party that RMIT members had last week when it was announced that $40 million was going to be paid back to employees uh, dating back to uh, wage theft from 2014. One just shudders to think how much uh, RMIT uh, decided to accept liability for... Oh, well, actually, they didn't. What they did was they settled out of court uh, without taking any liability uh, it, it, the extent of the wage theft must be so much greater. It's like that thing where someone admits to something bad, but uh, only to conceal something terrible. But uh, uh, you know, that's just uh, me pontificating. But anyway, at this party, apparently there was one academic who had was owed forty thousand dollars, and another up to seventy thousand dollars. That's how extreme the wage theft has been going on. Uh, anyway, uh, I went off to this rally, and uh, it was you know it was five thirty on Friday, and there were a lot of people there uh, in this rather secluded but uh, uh, serene environment outside a uh, Victorian mansion. Uh, quite extraordinary. So we'll hear from some speakers from there. They're on the warpath, and uh, as the RMIT man said, we're we're hoping that next year we will see strong industrial action with uh, uh, cohorts from all public universities walking down the street arm in arm, calling for the end of uh, this uh, uh, leprous uh, system, a business model of. Uh, uh, what they called wage theft and career uh, career theft that's going on in our public universities. Uh, later on, we're going to hear from Sarah Hathway about what's going on in Geelong with the uh, uh, AGL gas hub, which uh, AGL wants to build a gas hub, and uh, local uh, locals in the area are actually um, uh, pushing back. Uh, against um, what they see as being the uh, destruction of environment and the unnecessary uh, building of this hub. So we're going to find out more about that. Um, This is the week that was. Kevin's going to tell us about uh, the various things that have been uh, going on uh, through the week. And um, I'm going to talk to... um, Dr. Margaret Blakers, who's just put out a report called After the Logging. Uh, she looks at the uh, Vic Forest's promises of regeneration in the uh, public uh, foresty state that uh, they have access to for logging, their promise, what's actually happening, and the recommendations for a better future for Australia's old growth forests and for Victoria in general. Uh, we're going to finish up with uh, a little chat, hopefully, with Ella, who's part of CARF, uh, the Coalition Against Racism and Fascism, because today at 12, there's going to be a rally around the eight-hour monument. It's been endorsed by the Warriors Against Racism, and uh, it's a big deal. Hopefully, the weather will continue to be fine. Don't forget to take a drink bottle and uh, put on some slip-slop slap and a hat, maybe in a mask as well. Uh, Before we continue, 
let's hear the song for Eureka to commemorate what was an auspicious day on Friday, the anniversary of the Eureka Stockade. From every corner of the world, they came from all around. When in 1851 they struck gold upon the ground Every voyage was a long one, months upon the stormy sea Some to seek their fortune, others escaping slavery What they found on the gold fields was ruled by brutish thugs Discrimination and taxation mixed with swinging billy clubs The gold was getting scarcer and cops were getting worse The diggers burned their licenses and vowed to end this curse. They swore an oath beneath the Southern Cross. They'd stand together and break the license laws. From 20 different nations they gathered here as one in Ballarat beneath the Southern Sun. The crown tried to divide them giving preference to some. The diggers wouldn't have it. They said it's all of us or none. They built a stockade while the redcoats massed nearby and they heard the miners shouting, we're ready now to die. The rebel miners waited for whatever lay in store. And on one December morning in 1854, the redcoats attacked the camp. Dozens there would fall Amongst these brave gold diggers who'd risen to the call They swore an oath beneath the Southern Cross They'd stand together and break the license laws From twenty different nations they gathered here as one In Ballarat beneath the Southern Sun Things go their way But when 15,000 miners rallied a month later on the day The crown conceded everything All of their demands They'd want an end to license fees The right to vote and land So here's to Joe and Charlie Waller and the rest They drew the battle lines And put crown rule to the test The diggers may have lost the battle But they quickly won the day And those shots fired in Victoria Were heard 10,000 miles away They swore an oath beneath the Southern Cross They'd stand together and break the license laws From 20 different nations They gathered here as one In Ballarat beneath the Southern Sun They swore an oath beneath the Southern Cross They'd stand together and break the license laws From twenty different nations they gathered here as one In Ballarat beneath the Southern Sun Hi, I'm Ahmed from Fridor Primary School and you're listening to Community Radio on 3CR. You are, and uh, we're going to move straight on to the National Tertiary Education Union rally that was held last night outside the mansion in the Avenue. 
outside the Vice Chancellor's uh, mansion. It, they were joined by uh, the successful some successful URU uh, United Workers Union um, delegates and organisers who uh, uh, gave them great deal of support. Uh, because uh, next year is going to be a year of dramatic industrial action coming out of uh, universities, and this is just the beginning. Despite the fact that I've worked continuously at the university for over six years, I was actually not wholly surprised when I received notification that the university would not be offering me conversion. What did surprise me, though, was the rather tactless placeholder note that was included as a reason for my non-conversion a rather evocative and mysterious reason placed between angular triangular brackets. Scores of casuals across the university in both academic and professional roles received this particularly callous notice. But nearly all of us received some other form of careless or unbureaucratic notification from the uni that week. I was recently quoted in The Guardian describing my experience of receiving that email, that it made me feel like, quote, a loser. Mum and Dad are definitely printing and framing that article. <laughs> but seriously, everybody here will be familiar with the wide-reaching impacts of long-term casual employment and casual exploitation on your self-esteem, your ability to plan and look forward to your future, on your health, your family, indeed every single aspect of your life. University staff and the wider community have been rightly outraged by what's now been dubbed ReasonGate. The university's carelessness, disregard and disrespect for its casual staff seems to be a bottomless pit. On the other hand, what's made me feel really cool and popular was the show of solidarity amongst the almost 350 people who signed the open letter written by a group of casual activists that included myself in response to the reason bungling. Our letter was directed not at the random idiot who sent the, re who sent the email, not at the HR department, but at our Vice-Chancellor, Duncan Maskell. It is Duncan, after all, who runs the joint. And so it's Duncan who must be held to account for, his, for the appalling treatment of casual staff at the University of Melbourne. And this is why we're here today. So Duncan, knock, knock. If you're home, if you're listening, here's my message to you. The fair and ethical treatment of casual staff at this university rests on your shoulders. You have the discretionary power to lead the tertiary sector away from rampant casualisation. You must act to create realistic pathways to secure work and career progression. You must put an end to the business model that fundamentally relies on casual wage theft, misclassification of casual duties, and disregard for casual staff qualifications and experience. You have a moral obligation to meet with us, your casual staff. Duncan, this is our second visit to your mansion and we are getting comfortable. <laughs> we will not stop fighting for our rights and we plan to win. In the open letter that started this off, the reason that we're here, we had four, four demands we gave to Duncan. We sent it to him in the letter. We told him about it when we, when we bumped into him, to, um, bump to, him to him outside the Clyde. He hasn't agreed to any of them. We're asking for 200 new early career fellowships to give early career academics a pathway into secure teaching and research work so they don't have to go to overseas so they can have security in their lives. We're asking for them to convert eligible staff to secure forms of work. Like I said before, 70% of staff at the University of Melbourne are on insecure contracts. 
This is terrible. This isn't, this isn't the kind of casual re well, workforce supplementing secure work. They've got it upside down. We're asking them to reverse the 15% pay cuts for doctory qualified staff. One year after we caught Melbourne Uni out for wage theft, after they agreed to pay us back millions and millions of dollars, they just found a new way to steal money from us. And last, last of all, right, the one you'd think would be the easiest for Duncan, we asked him to organise a meeting with all casuals. He's refused. When we bumped to him outside the pub, again, he refused. That was pretty easy. He, he tried, you know, you saw him, he tried to run away a bit. Uh, there were 10 of us. We have long legs. He couldn't make it. Still, last, the last message we heard, he was contemplating our demands. So we made it really easy for him to come meet us. We're here, Duncan. If you're there, he's got the blinds down. Now, before I hand it over to our next speaker, uh, and I want everyone to be patient with this one. Yeah, so I'm, I'm not sure it's going to work, but I've got some hopes for it. Who paid for your stupid castle? Duncan Maskell, you dirty rascal. <laughs> Who paid for your stupid castle? Who paid for your stupid castle? Who paid for your stupid castle? Thanks so much for your patience with that one. <laughs> Hello everyone, I am a continuing staff member in the creative writing program. Have spent my 20s and 30s teaching sessionally at different universities across Melbourne, two decades of my life. I'm here to express my deepest solidarity on behalf of the continuing staff for the Casuals Network, for this union, for the ongoing fight. We see you. As a continuing staff member, I want you to know that so many of us are not prepared to look away and hide out. We see you. We see what is being done to you. We see the class system the university has been trying to entrench for so long pitting us against each other. We see the new painful language hiding the same ugly reality underneath it. We see that there is no secure, dignified employment on offer for you anywhere in sight, whatever the apologies. We don't believe in those apologies. My solidarity is filled with rage because wage theft and career theft are at the very heart of this university <laughs> treatment of you. <laughs> Not unfortunate byproducts, they are at the very centre of policies, procedures, calculations and decisions made, including now in the name of quote-unquote decasualisation, which is the latest ugly, cynical thing of conversion that I want to talk about. Despite the epic victory, victory of the wage theft campaign, and this victory is absolutely epic. Sorry, I'm not pausing when, you know, I'm just going to keep going. I don't, have, I don't have the music of it yet, but just, just shout on top of me. Oh, thank you so much. A little bit of encouragement, yes. The university is using the language of decasualization to continue institutionalizing and invisibilizing theft, wage theft and career theft. The <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Sorry, my hands are shaking. Um, the new anti-precarity conversion measures, which are designed to provide quote-unquote stability and quote-unquote certainty to the long-term sessional staff through the conversion, through the creation of teaching periodical positions, 
is the continuation of wage theft by another name. As you know, only a tiny number of casual academics have been offered these positions, but it's worse than that. Within these positions, the crucial gains achieved by the union on behalf of casuals are being rolled back, are being undone. But it's even worse than that. These positions still research, writing, thinking and connecting time and leave people financially stranded in the non-teaching periods. The stability these positions are supposed to offer is a lie. The certainty is a lie. These positions are worse than dead ends. And yet those who have just completed their first year, and some of them are my close friends, in these two-year roles, I've been told that they are exceptionally lucky, or so blessed, must feel to be so grateful to be the chosen ones. So many others would have given everything to be in your place, they're told. There is a cue. You're meant to feel the breath of the eager others on your neck. I am ashamed that this rhetoric is being used in 2021 at this university. I'm ashamed because every time a casual colleague of mine has spoken out or pushed back on their treatment, they have been treated as ungrateful and ungracious. The toxic paternalism of this the way casuals are divided into the grateful ones and the ungrateful ones, the compliant overworkers and the shit stirrers is shameful. The deserving and undeserving poor, the good and bad refugees, the compliant and angry First Nation academics, there is a history to these kinds of insidious, ugly divisions, and this history is shameful. When my friends in TPA roles and teaching periodical roles have spoken out against the insanity of their workloads, they have been told to work on their time management skills. Learn to do it faster. Learn to manage your time better. It's all part of, you know, getting better at your job. Three hours for one hour lecture preparation. Yes, so what's your problem? On what planet can a one hour lecture, in many cases for completely new subjects, be written in three hours? and not be the biggest pile of shit ever. <laughs> How many people who come up with these calculations and these hours have never taught and have no idea what it takes to walk into the classroom and be ready? And those in the upper echelons who once taught, haven't taught in so long they wouldn't know a student if they fell on their head. <laughs> They certainly have no idea what it takes to teach and what it takes to teach in the global pandemic. In the last two years, you, our sessional colleagues, literally held this university together. You held it on your shoulders. We know that. We absolutely know that for a fact. When the university completely fell apart and was on its back like a giant flailing fighting behemoth, <laughs> I'm just <laughs> hang on trying to take control of my notes when this university could only send endless emails feigning frantic activity because they didn't know what the fuck they were doing when this university disgraced itself again and again in front of our international students you made this university make sense to our students, local and international. You made this university a place of refuge and community and safety and intellectual engagement and most importantly, dignity. The indignity of asking sessional teachers and teaching periodical 
periodicals to choose between letting themselves be exploited or doing a shit job that devalues them as teachers and scholars and devalues students who are being given crap and told it is an exclusive Melbourne Uni lollipop. <laughs> My solidarity is filled with shame for the way in which this university thinks it's okay to tell, to, tell, to tell people, to tell you a week or so before the start of the semester whether you have jobs or not in the coming semester. The indignity of that, people with families and responsibilities and financial burdens and professional and creative lives much richer than the professional creative lives of people who make those decisions are supposed to stay suspended, hanging on, waiting to see if the crumbs will fall from the master's table. As a continuing staff member, I'm here to tell you that we will not choose our little bits of security over your secure employment, over justice, over dignity, over the future of this university. You are this university. Without you, this university is a bunch of managers and salespeople who might as well be running a giant car yard. Thank you. And now, last on our, our last speaker's list, we have Nick Robinson, co-convener of the Melbourne Uni Casuals Network, and also fresh from National Council. Coming up, Nick. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for coming. It's good to be here. It's funny looking at this mansion. It's like every time I walk down this street and I look at it, I'm probably not thinking what most people are thinking when they see a behemoth like that. I'm thinking about union wins. I'm thinking about union dollars, four back, one. And I'm thinking about the moment that I saw those dollars come into my account, right? And that was a big moment. That was a, that was a huge change. And for me, like, I can't believe, sometimes I can't believe that we pulled that off. And then I talked to some of the members, and I, I know what some of you spent that on. Some of you spent that on housing deposits. You know? You bought cars with it. You paid off debts. I mean, that money took you out of arrears and into the clear so you could start planning a life into the future. And it's kind of one of the most upsetting... There is something bittersweet about that, though, because it makes you realize what the university has taken from so many of us, right? Which is the capacity to plan into the future. And they've used that to fund a business model that is apparently meant to be saving money for the sustainability of the institution. Money that we never see and that they never seem to spend. But of course, money is not obviously the only measure of success for a union movement, right? There are other things that we want. Obviously, we want dignity of work. <laughs> and that was something that there was not a lot of, right? Going around the university when we started organizing a few years ago. Nobody wanted to identify as a, a casual worker. Nobody wants to identify with a class position that they so desperately need to be temporary, right? because they don't know if they're going to be able to last another semester. And the other hard thing about it too, one of the hard things about organizing casuals, is that that narrative, right? That narrative of exceptionalism that has allowed the university to get away with murder for so long. Because as casuals, we think their failure to provide dignified permanent work is our fault. We carry it as our personal failure. Yeah, <laughs> no, I don't think so, right? 
And yeah, exactly. And it's this whole thing, right, that we're standing here right now as a collective, which means that we're not doing that anymore. We're not taking that crap any longer. I mean, obviously, it's like what this means that we're all here is that we stop buying that story, right? The story the university has been selling to us, that we are just contract workers, you know, lucky for the privilege to toil and to toil some more. So we stopped acting like that, right? And started acting like what we are, which is contributors to the intellectual life of this country and a workforce, right? <laughs> you know, a work workers who, like all workers, are always stronger when we stand together and demand a future, the future that we deserve for the vital work that we do. And it is vital. So I think that's pretty good. And I think the last thing, <laughs> I think one of the other things that I think is important about what, what we've done here and what we will continue to do is that we've changed what the word casual means, I think. At the very beginning of this crisis, our VCs, guys like that guy up there, they were bragging in their boardrooms because they knew that their universities were crisis-proof because they had a workforce that they could shrink or expand at a moment's notice. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay, and then a year and a half on, it's like, obviously, that's not what happened. I mean, well, it did, but we didn't let them get away with it, right? And that is, a, that is a huge achievement. A year and a half, as those campuses went virtual, so did the Casuals Network, and we kept fighting. And now we hear the university is decasualizing, apparently. They're moving towards fixed-term contracts. Not the contracts we want just yet. That's not permanent work, not yet. But it does mean that we've gone and taken what was their get-out-of-jail-free card and turned it into a liability, which is what casual work should be, right? And that is a big win. <laughs> and I guess, I think the last thing I want to say is that I'm, it's like where we are in the campaign now, obviously we still have, there's more, there's more, there's more to do, right? We know that a decasualized university is not necessarily a more just one, just by virtue of that. And so we're going to have to keep the pressure on. But we built the strength to get us this far, right? And now we've got to find it in ourselves to build the strength to finish this. Because it's important for the sector, and it's important for us, and it's important for the union movement. That's it. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for coming out. When I say union, you say power. Union! Power. Union! Power. Union! Power. Union! Power. Make sure Duncan Marskell can hear it. When I say union, you say power. Union! Power. Union! Power. Union! Power. Union! Power. You know, there's people, like you said, have been on casual for seven years. Well, it's supposed to be casual employment. People want full-time jobs. They don't want to be sitting there casual, not knowing they're going to get any, any days, any leave, or what's... Whatsoever, especially you look at all the casuals in the, our industry at the moment, they're sitting home. You know, people want full time employment and they, sh they should be entitled to That's full time right. employment. And look at all the people who were used and abused as casuals in the aged care sector and all the problems that are facing people now and all the deaths that are following. In the meatworks, a lot of that's casuals, labour hire, you know, you've got blokes travelling around, you know. We want full time positions and, you know, that's. 
and people want it. We want to be full-time employed. You want to have your Christmas holidays. You want to have time with your family. But when you're a casual, you get none of that. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855am on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. And you're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. And as promised, I've got Sarah Hathaway on the line. Yeah. G'day, Sarah. <laughs> Thanks you? for having me. Yeah. Um, I've been dying to find out more about what's going on down in Geelong, Corio, uh, around the so-called AGL gas hub. Uh, the locals are um, unsettled by it, aren't they? Yeah, no, it's pretty scary. So Viva Energy runs our oil refinery, which was previously run by Shell, um, and they've got a proposal to build a floating gas import terminal in Corio Bay. Oh. Um, so it'll be extending their existing pier. There'll be a permanent um, ship that will be moored there, and then we'll have LNG tankers coming in and out of Corio Bay importing gas. Um, and it will be the first of its kind in Australia. So we currently have two gas export terminals, but this would be the first import terminal. All right, so there's a couple of things there, of course, straight away. Uh, the reliance on gas, this uh, this idea that it's a um, transition fuel um, is actually uh, this kind of in- infrastructure means that... Uh, Australia will commit itself to something which is unviable and um, quite disastrous uh, environmentally. Absolutely. It's, you know, it's pretty horrifying. I mean, this is just off the back of COP26, um, you know, and recently there was a report done by Climate Analytics basically saying that gas is the new coal. Like, to a large extent, we've kind of won the argument that coal is bad, Um and and now it's gas that we need to knock off. And if we can't knock off gas, then, you know, we're not going to meet the targets that we need to meet by 2030 or sooner. Um, so, yeah, it is pretty pressing fast that this project doesn't go ahead. Now, the next thing, of course, is that um, I have this visualisation of gas uh, in these big tankers as actually floating bombs, potentially. <laughs> they They are, aren't they? Yeah, well, yeah, so, I mean, the the, the um, climate issue is a big one for us. Obviously, we don't need gas. We've been pushing that message very strongly. Um, there's environmental impacts in terms of its proximity to Ramsar-protected wetlands, which is like migratory bird zones, um, impacts on the bay, but obviously the third big factor, which is getting a lot of resonance, is safety concerns. Um, because the the LNG tankers that will be coming in, um, the shipping channel is 250 metres within people's kitchens um, in North Shore. So it is so dangerously close. Um, and if people get the opportunity, we've just put up a little video on our Facebook page, um, which is Geelong Renewables Not Gas, and it and it shows the danger zones of, you know, absolute disaster, worst case, if a ship blew up, um, what the proximity, like who's in the firing line, 
Um, and distressingly, like, it's most of Geelong. <laughs> they just get wiped off the face of the earth. Um, so, yeah, the the safety concerns getting a huge resonance with, with in the north. You know, just if we go back to the uh, threatened um, wetlands for migratory birds, um, I remember the late uh, John Clark, uh, the comedian, um, and uh, um, philosopher, I'd have to say, uh, he was very concerned about the uh, fate of migratory birds and the destruction of wetlands and, uh, and put a lot of energy into trying to get people to realise that uh, these are hubs for migratory birds are part of the uh, perpetuation of the environment globally. Uh, these are, it's an absolutely essential part of um, a living environment, isn't it? Yeah, no, it's, you know, it's absolutely essential for the, you know, wildlife. And, um, you know, <clears throat> sorry, to add on to that too, I mean, there's real concerns around, you know, a whole range of things like chlorine, um, other toxic um chemicals, um, you know, killing of seagrasses, impacting on other wildlife in the bay. Um, and these, you know, these are people that know their stuff, like not to um, not to dismiss the average, you know, activist Joe on the street, but, you know, we are engaging with experts in their field who are giving us this information. Um, and when we raise it with Viva, because they're having all these community consultation meetings, um, they're just completely dismissive. You know, they're just, that I've got an answer for everything. They don't care. Nothing's a problem. Um, so, I mean, the next step for us early next year, we're going to go through this environment effects statement um, and, you know, we're basically going to case that this project is untenable because of the impact it'll have. People should be remembering uh, that uh, the big fires that were coming out of the uh, open cut down uh, near Morwell uh, a number of years ago was only uh, a six-lane highway away from destroying uh, Morwell. And it's exactly the same sort of level of proximity. And uh, for much older people, sh- people should remember Coot Island and the proximity to... Uh, uh, M- Melbourne Central, uh, the explosive power of that particular industrial uh, collection of uh, chemicals. So what you're saying and the danger is uh, very real, isn't it? Yeah, because, if, you know, if you put everything together out there in the north, not only will we have this, you know, floating gas terminal, we'll have LNG tankers coming in and out right next to an oil refinery, which is right next to a fertiliser manufacturing um, plant. It's just... That's a a marriage made in heaven, isn't it? (laughs) Absolutely, yeah. Just it's things that keep people up at at night um, out here in the north. Um, And, you know, it is a community that, you know, I think we already feel like we're the dumping ground Mm. for things that no one else wants. Um, so, you know, it has been really heartening to see, particularly the North Shore residents, but um, even those further back in North Lane coming out and just saying, you know, this is awful, we don't want it. Um, and then we've got, you know, this broader campaign across Greater Geelong 
um, because we all live around Corrigo Bay down here and it's going to impact everybody. Um, We've got people out at the heads um, at Queenscliff and Point Lonsdale saying, well, you know, the LNG tankers are going to come within, you know, 250, 300 metres of us when they enter the bay. Um, So, yeah, really wide-ranging impacts and... No one wants it. <laughs> uh, it, it. We touched. Uh, it'd be really interesting to understand how uh, you've been able to light the fuse of uh, activism in the community. Because you're right, uh, there is a sense of uh, an economic depression uh, around that area. But also, like Coria Bay is a very beautiful uh, bay. Uh, there's been, Geelong's been um, uh, given the honour of being an industrial city, but in actual fact, its environmental values are very high uh, if you actually look at it properly. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, I would say, you know, Viva Energy um, definitely counting on a, on a level of um, disengagement. Um, or uh, this, you know, job, jobs at all cost <coughs> argument. Um, but, you know, as soon as we got out there and spoke to residents in the north and said, oh, hey, like, have you heard about this gas terminal? They're just outraged, like, um, really outraged that once again we feel like out here in the north we're being shafted again. You know, it's one more thing being dumped on us because no one else wants to deal with it. Um, it is a relatively low socioeconomic area um, in the northern suburbs in Geelong. Um, but, yeah, there's just this sense of frustration that, you know, we take the crap that no one else wants in Geelong um, and it's a bit of a bridge too far. So that, yeah, level of um, anger has been quite good. Um, but, yeah, I think the challenge for us going into the new year is starting to cohere it into more of a mass movement, um, similar to what we saw in Western Port. Like, we know what it, what it takes to knock off a project like this. Um, and, you know, we need the whole community coming out on the streets. Um, so that's definitely what we want to be working to so is it the state government, the Commonwealth government, or is it commercial interests that are the major target? Oh, it's, yeah, I'd say definitely commercial interests. Um, Viva are getting a lot of handouts from the federal government um, as part of their whole gas-led recovery um, plan. Um, interestingly, the state government has been very quiet on this, Um and there was a period a while ago where they were under immense pressure from the federal government um, to come out and support it. Um, but they don't. No, I, I, honest, I don't think they do, or if they do, they they just don't want to... <laughs> They're trying to work out how to deal with it. Other. That's what you're saying? Yeah. yeah. And it's interesting now because we've just had a... Um, report released down here, um, the Ironbark Sustainability Report, um, which has shown that there's 24,000 new jobs for Geelong, effectively in in renewable and sustainable industries. Um, So this gives us a really strong hand now to say, look, we're not just against gas, but this is what we stand for. Um, and just to give you a sense of this report, you know, it's, it's 12,000 jobs in 
building retrofits, 2,000 jobs in green uh, transport for electric buses, 12,000 jobs around land use. Um, there's so much there to work with. Um, so on one hand, we can sort of use this as a lobbying tool, hopefully with state government, to go, this is you need to fund um, with our unions, with John Trade Hall, um, and get a much broader campaign around something positive um, for the community. Well, politicians uh, who uh, they need uh, community um, action in order to tip the ball in the right direction, don't they? Absolutely. No, we know that um, politicians rarely respond to much unless they feel that political heat and they know that there's votes in it. Um, so yeah, we really um, we really do need to take a leaf out of Western Port and just. You know, they were so successful in making that project completely untenable for any MP of any politician in that area. No one felt like they could support it. Um, and that's what we need here in Geelong. So are there anything that uh, my listeners can actually do to help you? Absolutely. So please um, get on to our Facebook page, Geelong Renewables Not Gas, if you want to learn more about the project. There's lots of great resources, but give us a like and a share. Um, We've also got a website, geelongrenewablesnotgas.org. There's a petition on that website. Um, You can sign up to be part of the campaign and receive updates, um, which will be great when we get ready to rally early next year. It'll be all hands on deck, and we'd love um, our friends from Melbourne to come down and support the campaign. Thanks for talking to us this morning, Sarah. No worries. Thanks, Annie. Ain't the one Been 
living in this skin If you want to call me something Call it to my face But I will not apologize for taking up this space Every time you cut me down I'm gonna come back fierce The time is through for being nice Let's call it what it is Solidarity Bricky team listener when in the we can't add to that department True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review headline Tuesday company profits up as wages fall it says it all profits up great news wages fall even greater news good for all of us profits rose 4% of the September quarter aided the article admitted by 10 billion in state and federal corporate welfare while wages dropped 0.8% aided by no government handouts the same week petrol prices for instance rose 2.5% no problem in filling up the company car but maybe a bit more of a problem for those who need their car to get to the company or wherever they want to go and on the opposite page to that exciting news about company profits and worker non-profits headline to warm the hearts of all who believe in the greatest little economic order of them all militant union must pay 2.2 million over strike well plus a bit more in costs and things and a few thousand more in fines on a couple of evil maritime union officials who had the criminal audacity back in 2017 to call for industrial action after pat pricks and club the workers a slight but necessary diversion here, Pat Pricks and Club the Workers who have done so much over so many years to make work on the waterfront so much better for the lazy, avaricious, unproductive workers who so care or they so care about. How could evil unions even consider industrial action against these model caring employers? Well, they did. Just because Patrick set up a section of the waterfront under Club the Workers employing non-union labour, leading the out-of-control union, union to allege it was attempting to de-unionise the workforce, as if, and at least the non-union labour, which is after all their legal right, non-union labour was not ex-trained killers trained in Dubai to scab or, oh, sorry, sorry, illegal word, do, do a more than fair day's work for less than a fair day's pay. 
He's on a understandably tore strips off the evil union for this total disregard for the law, advising it wisely that rather than pay millions in fines, its members' dues could be directed toward lawfully advancing the interests of the union's members. Good point, Your Honour. Except that seemed to be exactly what they were doing. So there it is, profits up, wages down, an evil union put in its place. What a good week. And it got even better. For as the lawless union and workers continue to accuse good, good patpricks of not taking negotiations seriously, Big Supremo scuttled them more less than a.k.a. Scomo had had enough. He will take the union to court to have the limited ability it has to take legal industrial action, protected action, declared unprotected. Because he's sick to death of the union and workers destroying the national economy and everyone's Christmas with it. Uh, So you're intervening on one side of the dispute. Certainly not. I'm attacking the union, quite properly attacking the union, and not attacking their caring employer, which has a magnificent record of promoting reform on the waterfront. Uh, but, but, But that is taking sides. How can you say that? I have taken both sides into consideration. And it gets even, even better. Big economic guru Josh Friedem Icebergs has got that institute of class-balanced neoliberal style, the Productivity Con Mission, to investigate why there are problems with the maritime supply chain. And no betting on where they'll finger the blame. Clue, it won't be Patrick's. And just when we thought it couldn't get any better, it gets even better. The evil, evil, evil CFMEU and its officials were fined more than $2 million for upsetting a crane company which exercised its right not to enter a union agreement. Or, as the troubler was, he smashed the evil construction union's jackboots con mission supremo Stephen McBurney, the workers explained sensibly, the union action strikes at the very heart of the protections contained in the fair work troubler was he no longer work choices just looks like an act and the smash the evil union's jackboots improving productivity act. Uh, protections, Stephen. Yes, workers must be protected from evil unions. Uh, but, but what about their right to join a union? That, that right must be exercised with great discretion to ensure it does not interfere in their lives and poison their wonderful win-win relationship with their good, good, caring employer. Who's such an exciting week. And the improving productivity in the Act's title shows we can't improve productivity if unions are involved. And caring employers who are so concerned about slow wages growth assure us we can't resolve slow wages growth until we improve productivity. But if evil unions are an impediment to productivity, then this exposes even more blatantly the drain evil unions are on wage growth. So the caring business class government's on the right track, making any union action on behalf of workers totally illegal. It's the government fighting to win higher wages for lazy, avaricious workers. Oh, and it's considering a jackboots con mission similar to the construction jackboots con mission to cover maritime workers, showing that even though they are so out of control, the government still cares for them. Sadly, 
just one not-so-good news story this week. Poor great supermarket caring employer Kills Your Budget was sprung for underpaying thousands of workers more than $115 million over the past three years. Poor Kills Your Budget. It, it must be devastated, which just shows the moral difference between caring employers and evil unions. The unions upset caring employers by deliberately, deliberately breaking the law by acting on behalf of their members, while Kills Your Budget is another example of a poor caring employer making a small $115 million inadvertent mistake. Any wonder the government is so intent on further tightening laws to protect us from evil unions. And this one really confuses me. Yet another report, this time from the Workplace Gender Equality Agency, urges the government to force large companies to set and meet targets to reduce the gender pay gap and increase the number of women in the workforce. Uh, hang on, what, what were we celebrating back in 1972-73 when the courts ordered equal pay for equal work and we thought, therefore, we were celebrating equal pay for equal work? Oh, they must have given caring employers time to adjust to this new impediment to productivity and progress for having to pay women because caring employers need certainty. And women caused more problems as the Sex Discrimination Commissioner brought down a report into rampant sex discrimination in the seat of government. Rampant sexual harassment and assault, Scummo said there was nothing he wasn't aware of. And the inquiry followed a caring business class party staffer bravely going public over an alleged rape in the house of sexual harassment and assault. So if you knew about it, Scummo, why didn't you do something about it? I did. I, I waited for this report. So now you'll act. Certainly. I will call for a report on how we can deal with this report. And a caring business class party member told the ABC yesterday morning she had had no problems with coalition members but had been subject to sexism from Socialist Party members. So the Socialist Party is the problem. The interviewer interviewed. Oh, no, I didn't mean to make it party political. Right. She just happened to mention the Socialist Party. Perhaps she mistook the Education Minister as a member of the Socialist Party after he celebrated the damning report by being accused of sexual power games, harassment and violence, which he, of course, denies. But nonetheless, Tudge was given a nudge. And the interesting sideline was that the alleged violence occurred after he visited Kalgoorlie to introduce a cashless debit card that would ban the purchase of alcohol, then headed off and got pissed out of his mind which mightn't take much piss to get out of, but showing there's absolutely no hypocrisy as far as that lot's concerned. As the Socialist Party courageously came up with a compromise climate change, if there is such a thing, policy that would not allow the government to attack it, that great contributor to the environment, Adani the Planet, wants the government to introduce specific laws to prevent these bloody environmentalists who refuse to accept the great benefits of exporting trillions of tonnes of old King Coal from blocking the trains taking that coal to the ports so it can head off to do its bit for the planet. Activists get nothing but a slap on the wrist and are back within weeks, a Brava spokeswoman complained. See, it, it changed its name. Surely it didn't think Adani the Planet was on the nose. Everyone has the right to express their opinion, provided they are doing so in a way that is legal. She was all understanding. And, of course, is totally ineffective.
Scuttle then got very excited when advice Omicron had arrived. Great, great, he's decided to talk to me at last. That'll help my election campaign. Uh, no, 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 Mr. Zapino, Omicron, not, not Macron. There's every chance, of course, Macron isn't all that upset about our nuclear venture, but just doesn't want to talk to him. We, we can't blame him. Like in Rome and Glasgow last month, when Scummo was seen wandering around trying to find someone who would talk to him. Perhaps he could adopt his favourite solution, technology, not taxes, and get someone to make a robot that's programmed to talk to him. Although that's a bit dangerous because it would prove to be a lot more intelligent and, and would ultimately die or rust or whatever robots do from boredom. Talking to himself, Scummo attacked critics who suggest the Minister for Train Killing and Being Offensive, Constable Peter Duffer, is warmongering in his desperation to attack evil China. As we said last week, like a chihuahua itching to take on a Rottweiler with only one possible result. It's a tribute to his intelligence that he thinks we could. But given they're aware the only way we can have peace is to attack evil China, let's recommend we revert to the days of yore when leaders who declared war led the cannon fodder into battle. Give them a chance to practice their convictions and wear that iconic slouch hat they so revere. Constable Duffer also iterated that roaming the oceans with nuclear-powered submarines did not breach the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. A bit more detail wouldn't have hurt, but no, no, he must be right because the Socialist Party agrees with him. Which finally, sadly, brings us to in one of the most disgraceful attacks ever in the history of parliamentary democracy, Socialist Party Supremo and would-be Big Supremo, Anthony All-Bing-Uzi, called poor Pete, Buffhead! Goodness gracious, where would that have come from? Good morning. 3CR Community Radio, giving the voice to the community since 1976. Yeah, and you're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast, and we've got Margaret Blakers on the line. G'day, Margaret. How are you? Oh, hi there, Annie. I'm good. Yeah, now I'm talking to you because of your report that's just been released after the logging. Uh, And uh, can you explain to listeners what the report was uh, aiming to do? What we were aiming to do was look at what happens, as its title says, after the logging. So we've had... Uh, the forest wars going on for decades now in Victoria and elsewhere and that's obviously preventing the damage in the first place is obviously the priority but it's also time to see what's uh, what the result is of all of that damage over all of those years and so that's what we've started out to look at. Yeah yeah it's quite interesting isn't it uh, uh, now well, let's go back to 1992 and uh, the entrenching of logging as a permanent feature of state forest management with the RFA. Let's explain that to uh, listeners. It's um, RFAs, Regional Forest Agreements, are agreements between the Commonwealth and uh, the governments of several states, one of which is Victoria, which say, in effect, that if the logging is carried out as uh, described in in these agreements, then the Commonwealth will step back and wash its hands effectively of uh, the way in which logging is done and whether it's it's, um, meeting the environmental credentials that it's supposed to. So the Commonwealth essentially washes its hands and leaves Victoria in charge. Yeah, and uh, the uh, body that uh, Victoria uses is Vic Forest, which is 
a commercial enterprise using native forests as its product. And uh, despite the fact that uh, the RFAs uh, have at their core statements such as maintaining the ecological processes within the forest, preserving their biological diversity and optimising the benefits to the community from all uses of forests within ecological constraints. Your actual uh, uh, review of COPs, uh, COOPs that have been um, uh, um, destroyed... Yeah, log. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to work out how to describe that yes, because yes. if you see them, it's heartbreaking it, to see. It is. Um, yes. The uh, promise of uh, Vic Forest to return uh, the forest to their original state is an empty promise. Uh, yes, it certainly is. So Vic Forest is is the Victorian government's logging agency. It's so it's fully government-owned, but it's meant to make a profit. And its only job to make that profit is to uh, sell logs out of native forests. Um, they are, as you say, that on their website, their motto is, we grow it back. And the agreement between the Commonwealth and Victoria also is premised on uh, the forest, once, it's, once the trees have been taken away, being regrown, which, of course, takes decades to centuries, but uh, it, nevertheless, that's the promise, that it will be, be regrown and eventually will come back and be be similar to what was there before the logging. Yeah, in um, fact, I'd love to read what, what they actually say. Sustainability mm-hmm. underpins good forest management, and as such, it is important that big forests regrow the forest in all areas where harvesting takes place. We take pride in using multiple techniques and each area is monitored to ensure the forest returns to maturity and is left to grow and to be enjoyed by the public for many years. Now, this is greenwashing because it's impossible for native forests to be regenerated to its full maturity in the time frame they're talking about. Well, in any time frame, I would say it's really quite heartwarming what the way they put it, but the reality is actually very, very different. Um, and if if people are interested in going online, look on the ABC website and you'll find, uh, if you search for Vic Forest, you'll find several stories about what actually goes on in the forest, including the one about uh, the fact that they don't regrow every forest that's logged. In fact, 30% of the time they don't get to even first base, which is getting enough seedlings growing after three years or within three years. But but uh, their uh, CEO or whatever she's called went on record in March of this year to say that everything's under control. She went well, to a Senate committee and actually said that, put it on record. Yes, and she and others have done that uh, several times over the last few years, but... Um, this is a case, the regeneration story is a case where pictures speak louder than words. And as I said, if you go onto the ABC website and have a look at some of those pictures, some of these areas that used to be magnificent forests full of, you know, with wildlife and uh, looking after water, helping avert climate change, those forests have been turned into weed-infested grasslands, blackberries, gorse, scotch thistles, whatever you, whatever you like. Um, 
and it's 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 heartbreaking it, and it's shocking. Now it's a closed loop, isn't it? Uh, it's got to a point where Vic Forest, which has a uh, which earns money by selling timber from trees, it it did not grow. Uh, the it is actually uh, the uh, Vic Forest. Um, board that signs off on which coops are going to be uh, uh, chopped down next, right? Yes, that's right. So a coop, just to explain, is um, an area of forest which is scheduled for logging. So they're usually about 20, 30, 40 hectares in area, so a a sizeable chunk of forest. And it used to be the case that there was some checking on what happened, what uh, what was lined up to be logged and what happened after they were logged by the Environment Department. Um, but in 2013, there were some major changes put through which effectively made Vic Forest the law unto itself. And that's really a fundamental part of... Uh, well, native forest logging is a, a problem in its own... You know, a problem in its own right, and I think it needs to end pronto, but um, leaving that to one side for a moment, just in its own terms, Vic Forest was allowed to, was given the power to become basically self, self-regulating, self uh, able to look after all aspects of its own operations with very little interference, no accountability from elsewhere. And accountability is key here, no transparency. Uh, they don't even uh, really pretend on the ground to do the things that they say in their fine words. Yeah, well, and the, the no transparency issue is also that they keep secret most of the information about what's going on. So I had to uh, go to freedom of information requests to extract the information about what had been logged and what had supposedly been re- regenerated, regrown, um, which Vic Forest puts in an annual report, but the report is secret. <laughs> Oh, that's just unbelievable. Um, you you wouldn't read about it, would you? Uh, <laughs> except, in, except in my report. <laughs> except in your report, which, of course, is called After the Logging. It's an actually impressive piece of work. You've been through uh, a, a, quite a few of these uh, logged areas to um, analyse the actual results on the ground of this destruction. Yes, that's right. Um, and you can find the report itself. It was co-published by 19 Victorian environment groups, which was a pretty amazing um, outcome. So they, if you look at most of the, or any of those groups that are um, campaigning on looking after our native forests, you'll find a copy of the report there. Yeah. Um, you do have some recommendations. Do you want to run through them? Yes, so the the main two really are that the logging has to stop and Western Australia has already decided to end logging of native forest no later than the end of 2023. And while Victoria has, the Victorian Labor government has said it will end in 2030, I strongly think that that needs to be pulled forward forward to align with Western Australia. So that's one. And the other one is Vic Forest has got to go. It's got to be abolished. It has no place in that sort of quick transition or any sort of transition. It's distrusted by most of the community with which it has to interact. 
the environment community, um, secretive, and uh, its job, is, as I said earlier, is to sell logs, not to look after forests. So it's got to go and it should be replaced by a transition, an independent, credible transition authority that can um, manage this exit process and can also make sure that Indigenous voices are front and centre in that process. What about the role of the Commonwealth? The Commonwealth should uh, um, void, that's not, I'm not quite sure that's the right word, but anyway, abolish the, the regional forest agreement at the same time. But um, it's not, it's not uh, in any way, shape or form credible that the Commonwealth is accrediting Victoria's forest management when this sort of disaster is being unfolding on the ground. Thanks for talking to us this morning, Margaret. No problem. Thank you very much. Listening to Radical Radio 3CR. 
And you're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. And isn't that a groovy number? That was Peace Frog from the Doors, uh, Blast from the Past. And on the line, we've got uh, Ella from CAF, Coalition Against Racism and Fascism. G'day, Ella. How are you? Good. How are you? Good. It's a lovely morning, isn't it? (laughs) It's a perfect day for a rally. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, good weather for a rally, you're right. Yeah, yeah. Now, uh, this is the second in the uh, anti-racist fascism rallies that Melbourne has seen since lockdown. Can you explain to listeners why it's important? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so we had our first rally on November the 20th, about two weeks ago now, um, to stand against the growing um, anti-vax far-right movement on the street. And yeah, as you know, the campaign against racism and fascism, we think it's really important to have a left-wing um, political pro-public health response on the street to respond to this growing far-right movement. You know, they've been mobilising tens of thousands of people every single week for the past month, basically, and we think it's important that the left and people who support vaccinations and people who support public health actually politically start to oppose them on the street. So that's why we think um, our counter-protests are important to actually send a clear, yeah, pro-public health, um, pro-worker, but also anti-fascist um, message on the streets of Melbourne um, to kind of start to push back against the right-wing shift we're seeing yeah, on our streets. There's a, a slightly disturbing element uh, mm. f- uh, filtering along underneath the currents of uh, Melbourne at the moment where some mm. left, in a inverted commas, left people... Uh, have been seeing the freedom uh, movement as a mm. uh, as a uh, a groundswell of uh, the ordinary person's voice mm. and have thrown their lot in with this group, um, mm. which is, as I say, quite disturbing. Uh, what's mm. your response? Yeah, well, I think that to be honest, you think about it, like the majority of Victorians, actually there was a poll that came out like last week on the 30th of November that suggested that um, 76% of Victorians supported mandatory vaccinations and um, supported like public health measures, right? And so I think, you know, um, the argument that these freedom protests represent like, you know, like ordinary people, I think it's um, actually mostly wrong. And I think, you know, we're not arguing that all of the people who go to these rallies are fascist, but we are saying that there is, you know, um, uh, you know, the political sort of nature of these rallies is far-right and right-wing in its nature because, you know, for a variety of reasons, really, there's, like, right-wing um, political forces like Clive Palmer's party, um, like Reignite Democracy Australia, like the hard-right of the Liberals who are behind um, this movement. But also there's no neo-Nazis and anti-Semites who are, like, um, present and speaking um, at these rallies. And so... We think, um, yeah, it's actually, the argument is is that the demands of these rallies are anti-human and anti-public health and everyone who's going to them actually, um, you know, is standing alongside um, really sinister figures, but also um, they're standing as part of a really reactionary movement. So I think, yeah, like that's my argument in that the majority of people in Victoria actually you know, oppose these people in the sense that they actually support public health measures. I must, so we need to, yeah, I must, yeah. but I must say too, I mean, if this was a, a, a grand statement of freedom, uh, how come mm. they're not actually standing outside the Park Hotel for the freedom of those uh, refugees, yeah. you know? Definitely, yeah. And and also the reports on the program today about uh, people who are being exploited uh, in the casualised 
system that's being hmm. perpetrated across the country. It's 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 actually quite an outrage. Yeah, for sure. Like these people don't care about freedom; they care about their individual rights to spread a deadly disease. Um, yeah, exactly. They did care about freedom. You're right. They would be um, demanding the freedom of the you know 38 refugees who are still locked up in the Park Hotel. Yeah, or um, you know demanding like um, standing against racism or stand- fighting like. Um, yeah, exactly, for, like, workers' rights and stuff like that, which they're actually not. So, yeah, I think you're spot on with that. Um, I noticed that uh, the Warriors Against Racism have uh, actively uh, thrown their lot in with the... Uh, uh, put support behind this yeah. rally today. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And Mariki Onus is speaking at our rally today, which I think is, um, yeah, really important for a variety of reasons and really, yeah, good that they've got behind our rally especially because um, the um, anti-vax far-right um, movement is basically making up lies and cynically um, using the question of, like, Aboriginal rights to campaign against vaccinations, um, which, yeah, I think is pretty... Well, especially um, when it was just announced that uh, an elder yeah. has just died. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Sure. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have interrupted you. Uh, no, 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 definitely, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, we should all be meeting uh, around the eight-hour monument at 12 p.m. today. Uh, Tell us the significance of the eight-hour monument, uh, the meet there. Yeah, for sure. I think, um, you know, the eight-hour day monument um, actually represents and symbolises the tradition which um, we stand in, which is the tradition of, you know, fighting um, for solidarity amongst workers and fighting for better conditions um, for workers and, you know, like obviously the eight-hour day monument, yeah, um, represents workers fighting for the eight-hour day, fighting for the collective interests of everyone um, and that's what we're about. We're about fighting on the side, you know, standing on the side of social solidarity, standing on the side of public health and that means, um, yeah, like the eight-hour day monument I think represents um, the politics and traditions in which CAF stands um, of the public good, yeah. Yeah, and so will you be following the same uh, sort of route that uh, happened uh, a couple of weeks ago, or is there? A... I think we will. Yeah. 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 So it was quite quite interesting, you know, because uh, there was a walk from the eight hour monument across, through Carlton and around uh, towards uh, Swanston Street, uh, past the Park Street um, mm. Hotel, and that's an unusual sort of uh, route uh, for demonstrations in Melbourne. It's a you've created a new format, really. Yeah, I guess that's, that's right. Yeah, I think um, yeah, it's important. The route was important in terms of, like, yeah, first starting at the eight-hour day monument, but then also marching to the Park Hotel um, to actually, like, you know, um, stand against one of the manifestations of oppression in Australia, which is, like, the refugees, yeah, who have been locked up for over eight years of their life and now are in a, you know, detention centre in the middle of the CBD. It's actually so outrageous. And, yeah, I think, um, yeah, like, standing, you know, for that freedom, like, Real, like you know, fighting for real freedom, not the freedom that the um, so-called freedom protesters are fighting for, was yeah, really symbolic and important, and actually, um, yeah, like highlighting what's going on in the middle of the city and what real freedom fighters need to be fighting for. Thanks for talking to us today, Ella. See everyone today at the rally at twelve o'clock. That's right, at the Eight Hour Monument, which is just across the road from the Victorian Trades Hall. Uh, We've come to the end of the program. We uh, went to the uh, rally outside uh, the Vice-Chancellor Melbourne University's mansion.
uh, where the NTU rallied uh, for to end uh, the uh, casualisation of their university's workforce. Uh, there's this new thing called um, what is it? Conversion. It's a it's a religious sort of term, a public relations term, where they're pretending that uh, they're actually going to end precarity, but in actual fact, it's a ruse. Uh, and the business model stands and uh, the NTU, its members and the workforce at Melbourne University and other public universities are putting on notice that there's going to be industrial action in the winds next year, uh, not before time. Uh, the... Uh, we talked to Sarah Hathaway about uh, what's going on uh, in Geelong around this uh, Geelong Renewables Not Gas, a hub that they're um, trying to defend the uh, country, uh, the uh, the city from. Uh, and uh, this is the week there was. And then about uh, after the logging report, which... Uh, really is quite scathing at uh, the Vic Forest management of uh, our public estate, uh, the old growth forests in Victoria. Coming up next is uh, Asia-Pacific Currents. As I said earlier in the program, uh, this has been um, a week of anniversaries. Uh, Friday was the um, uh, Eureka Stockade um Anniversary, so what is it? A hundred and oh, it's eighteen fifty one to two thousand and twenty one. That's a major anniversary, and uh, also the West Papuans were honouring the raising of their flag, the uh, Morning Star flag. Very important period of history for them, and uh, there were demonstrations of support for West Papua around the world and in Australia more lo- and Melbourne more locally. Um, they were uh, there were pictures of them uh, on the parliament, parliament steps. Um, perhaps they were shifting um, the real message of freedom uh, to the steps of Parliament this week. Anyway, in honour of that, we're going to go out with uh, George uh, Tullock's great West Palpuan um, anthem. <laughs>
20 Years on the Inside is an iconic new podcast series that gives voice to the experience of First Nations people in the Victorian prison system. 20 Years on the Inside, I'm Vicky Roach. And I'm Kutcher Edwards. This series reflects... You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.